Welcome to the hills. Now, I've been saying that the last six months, but I've been looking at a camera talking to our faith community online around the world. And if that's where you are today, welcome. But for the first time in six months, I get to say it to actual people in the room. Welcome. If you're at South Lake, if you're at West Fort Worth or North Richard Hills, it is so glad. I'm so glad to see your smiling foreheads. I thank you for being here. And I just have to say as a pastor, I want to thank you for your generosity. This Courage campaign has been amazing. Now, initially it was going to be two years. We lengthened it to three. And in the last three years, we have given millions of dollars to world missions. We have planted churches. We fully funded two new campuses. We have seen hundreds of people confess Christ and be baptized. And it's because of your generosity. Jesus said that your heart goes wherever you put your money. And you have shown me that your heart is going toward the mission of God. So thank you. And if you still have a pledge to fulfill, try to do that this month. I want to talk to you today about passion. So, there's a magazine called Booksellers Magazine that every year hosts a competition for the oddest book title of the year. Now, the rules are it has to be a serious work of nonfiction. So, recently the winner was Highlights in the History of Concrete. Other notable selections have been The Illustrated History of Metal Lunchboxes, the development of brain and behavior in the chicken, Soviet bus stops, and my personal favorite, butchering livestock at home. And can we be honest, are you a real Texan if you don't have on a shelf in your house a copy of butchering livestock at home, okay? So here's the point. We all have passions about different things. And we don't all understand why other people are so passionate about the thing they're passionate about. But almost everybody seems passionate about politics. I can understand that. What I don't understand is why we let that passion become so toxic. And especially when that toxic Passion is exhibited by Christians. So I'm starting a short two-week series called The Separation of Church and Hate. And let me say, in my over 40 years of preaching, I have never received more texts and emails of people saying, I'm praying for you than I have for this series. <laughs> Which tells me either you're very nervous or... You're very aware and tired of the poisonous political climate in this country. We are stressed by it and we're confused about what we can do about it. And so, I'm not going to play it safe. I could have played it safe. I could have come back and said... Good to see you again. We're going to do a series on the fruits of the Spirit or how to have a better prayer life. And that would be good. But I think in this moment, it would have been pastorally irresponsible. Because these are the times in which we live. And part of my job as a pastor is to equip you to be a faithful witness in whatever times we have. And when Christians 
display their political passion in toxic ways. It marginalizes the witness of the church. And it demoralizes the leaders of the church. So you've heard me say before, this has been the hardest year ever in my 42 years of being a pastor to lead a church. For a lot of obvious reasons. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm just acknowledging the obvious. Tom Rainier, a well-known church consultant uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention, said in his research, over 70% of pastors in America have considered quitting in the last six months. Pastors are beat down and discouraged. And here's one of the chief reasons. Politics. And here's what he writes. Ministers dread election years because they know what is coming. Lies will be shared. Sins will be excused. Bad behavior will be defended. Good behavior will be ignored if it comes from the other side. It is a moral and ethical nightmare. In election years, the hopes of the nation is placed in what happens in November, not in Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Many ministers wonder if what they've been doing matters. Why continue on if it can all be so easily disregarded because of an election? And so, we're going to take a couple of weeks and we are going to talk about the elephant and the donkey in the room. And here's what I am not going to do, and it will disappoint some of you. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. Now, here's what you need to know. As long as I have been at this church in over 30 years, in every single election, Christ-honoring, faithful, Bible-believing members of the hills have voted for candidates in different parties. And that will happen again in November. This church has never endorsed parties or candidates. If I did that today, by tomorrow, the elders would reprimand me and maybe even fire me. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. Here's what I hope to do. To equip you to live as faithful people committed to the way of Jesus. Not as fearful people who put their hope in political power instead of in God. Now, there's a reason politics makes us tense. There's a reason nothing divides like politics. And the reason is that nothing divides like fear. And politics often majors in fear. Now, you just watch the commercials the next month. From every party, at every level, from national all the way down to local politics, they're going to sow fear. The primary message from both sides is going to be, you should be very, very, very afraid if the other side wins. Now, my concern is not who you vote for. It's why you voted for them. Because if your motivation is fear, then it is an indication that something is taking God's place as your hope for the future. Now, political power is real. Jesus recognized it. Jesus said, we live in two dominions. They came to Jesus to test him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Show me a coin. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Well, here's what he said. 
Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. So Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. God ordained human government for the pursuit of the common good. But here's the reality. As we live in these two dominions, one of them is going to become the lens through which we view the other. So my question for all of us who follow Jesus is this. Where do I pledge my allegiance? And so many people see their primary identity as tied to their particular political viewpoints. What would people say about you? I'm talking maybe about your neighbors, the people that you've worked with for 5 or 10 or 20 years, the people that you're with by the water cooler, the people that know what you talk about the most and know what really gets under your skin. Would they say that you are fundamentally a Christian who happens to vote Republican or Democrat most of the time? Or would they say, knowing what really gets you going, that you're fundamentally a Republican or a Democrat who tries to like, live like a Christian most of the time. We've got to stop letting Christian be a modifier. It is not an adjective. It is a noun. Christian is not something I tack on to the other things about me to describe who I am. Christian is my core fundamental identity. And that means we evaluate politics through the filter of our faith instead of constantly reshaping our faith to endorse our particular politics. We give to God what only belongs to God. And if we do that, I think there are three convictions we will have that frankly shouldn't even be controversial if your core identity is follower of Jesus. And here's the first. Christ is greater than Caesar. Now, before you say, duh, I want to remind you of a time in the Bible when God-fearing, Bible-believing people stood in front of a politician and said, we have no king but Caesar in order to accomplish the murder of Jesus. And that temptation is very real to give to a politician what only belongs to God if that politician will do what we want. And so let's be very, very clear. In November, we're going to elect a president. Two men are running. Neither candidate is the Antichrist, and neither one is the Savior. One of them is going to be elected. But the reality is, in just a few generations, both men are going to be footnotes in history, while King Jesus is still going to be the best-known and most compelling person who's ever lived. And so we give to Jesus what belongs only to Jesus, our complete, full allegiance. Like our early brothers and sisters 
In Acts 17, there's a riot and Christians are brought before the local politicians. And here's the charge made against them. They're guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Now, that was true and not true. It was not true that they were treasonous citizens, but it was true they would not say Caesar is Lord because Jesus was their king. We should be just like them. It means we cannot give full allegiance to any political party or system because Jesus belongs to neither. He doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. And so the question is not if Jesus follows our politics, but do we follow Jesus in such a way that it informs and shapes and even challenges our politics? And if Jesus has never challenged a single one of your political views, then you've made Jesus in your image instead of the other way around. Jesus is going to challenge anyone's politics because his mission is larger than any one politician or nation. And that leads to the second conviction a Christ follower should affirm. Kingdom is greater than country. For Jesus, the good news was more than just the forgiveness of sins. It was the invitation to come under the gracious reign of God. This was Jesus' go-to sermon. He preached all the time. Mark 1, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And for Jesus, this good news was not just the possession of one nation. In fact, one of the reasons they murdered Jesus is that he refused to be a nationalist. He refused to put the agenda of one nation ahead of God's concern for all the peoples of the world. This good news was for every nation. Jesus was building this community of non-boundaried people who saw their fundamental identity not in their nationality, but in their conviction of Jesus' identity. So I have a passport. It says I'm a citizen of the USA. It's very convenient for travel, and it's the truth, and I'm very proud of that fact. But you need to understand that while I love my country, my fundamental identity is Christian, not American. Now, this is why when I travel the world, I can find greater kinship with someone that confesses Christ in Uganda or China than I feel with someone that denies Christ from Alabama or Arizona. And I realize not everyone agrees with me about that. An extreme example. I have a good friend that pastors a church on the East Coast. And some years ago when our nation was in an armed conflict with a country primarily identified as a Muslim nation, uh, some of our planes dropped a payload on a city and there were civilians that were killed. And the pastor knew of many in that city that were Christians. And despite what you've been told, there are Christians in every nation of the world. So he simply lamented before his church. He wasn't critical of the military. He wasn't critical of our government. He simply lamented the fact that brothers and sisters in Christ died in that bombing raid. And he got immediate, intense pushback from people in his church. 
who said basically, I don't care if they're Christians. If they live in that country, they are our enemies, and I hope they all die. Those people have an identity problem. Now, I am a patriot, but I am not a nationalist. I do not confuse the agenda of America with the agenda of God. There is no nation or party that can bring about the future for which I long. But I do not live in fear. Because I know the future of the kingdom doesn't depend on the future of any nation. We should be very, very glad about that. As the Hebrew writer says, let us be thankful because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And again, this was very true of the earliest Christians. Uh, there's a letter from antiquity about 130 A.D., so just 100 years after Jesus was crucified. And this letter was written to someone called Diognetus, and he was describing what Christians are like. And here's what it says. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity, either in locality or in speech or in customs. They dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians, and yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they are only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not abort them. They share their meals, but not their wives. As the soul is present in every part of the body, while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world. But they cannot be identified with the world. You see what they were saying about the earliest Christians? They live in every country of the world, and they live like good citizens. And yet they, they live like people that are citizens of another country. And here's the irony. I think I serve my country better when I seek the kingdom more. And so my third conviction is this, that citizenship is greater than partisanship. Now, in 2016, I experienced something unique in all my years of preaching. I've never had so many members of my church come and say, Pastor, I don't know how to vote. I feel conflicted. I don't feel good about either choice. Now, maybe you did, and that's fine. I'm just saying that's the reality that many people felt, and I'll be honest, I felt it too. For many, many years now, I have felt politically homeless. In fact, there have been elections where I have written in names because I didn't like the choices I had. You said, well, you just threw away your vote. Maybe, maybe I sent a message to the parties, give me somebody better to choose. But here's the truth. There is no Christian party. Each party has platforms that include positions Christians can legitimately debate and disagree on. Each party has positions kingdom people ought to be able to support. And each party has positions kingdom people should suspect. And frankly, this should be one of the church's gifts to our nation and to our political process that we're willing to be the conscience of the nation. To affirm what is good and to challenge what is out of line with Jesus' will. 
Partisan politics reminds me of the court prophets in the Old Testament. All the kings and the queens had court prophets that they paid. And those prophets would just say to the king or the queen, whatever you like, God likes. Whatever you want, God wants. And they would just tell the king or the queen, you're on God's side, no matter what they did or what they said, so that the king or queen would give them the favors they wanted. You ought to read what God says about court prophets that sacrifice truth so that they can get favor from people in power. The irony is that the earliest Christians improved the empire while refusing to pledge allegiance to it. They would never say Caesar is Lord, and yet they made Caesar's empire better. They took in the babies that were tossed out on the dump because people didn't want them because they had handicaps and disabilities. They took the sick into their homes that people cast out. They made places to serve the women that were sex trafficked. It was the Christians in the empire that started the orphanages and the hospitals and the food banks. And they made the empire better even as they refused to pledge blind allegiance to it. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is for this world. And so, as followers of Jesus, we don't align exclusively with any political power. And here's the thing. It makes us better citizens. And it makes us kinder citizens. Because we can love unconditionally even the people with whom we disagree politically. It allows us to practice the separation of church and hate. A great example of this with Billy Graham. Some of you are old enough to know that for decades he was pastor to every single American president regardless of party. And when he was asked how he could do that, he replied, I'm not for the left wing or the right wing. I'm for the whole bird. <laughs> now, I honestly don't believe anything I've said so far should be controversial to a Christ follower. Christ is greater than Caesar. Kingdom is greater than country. Citizenship is greater than partisanship. I think what I'm about to say might get some pushback. But remember, my aim is to equip us to be faithful people committed to the way of Christ. And politics reveals that many of us are fearful people. We are afraid of where our country is headed. I can understand that. And some of us are convinced that through political power, we can fix America. That through political power, we can promote Christian standards and values. And there's just one problem. Jesus rejected that strategy. Could anybody have been a perfect candidate for ruler of all? 
If Jesus wanted to fix the world from the top down, he could have chosen that. That's what the disciples thought he was going to do. When you come into your kingdom, can we be in the cabinet and have places of power next to you? And here's what he said. You know that the rulers of the non-Jewish people love to show their power over the people. And their important leaders love to use all their authority, but it should not be that way among you. Whoever wants to become great among you must serve the rest of you like a servant. Whoever wants to become first among you must serve the rest of you like a slave. Because that's how he did it. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many people. Now here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that Christians shouldn't serve in government. That we shouldn't engage the political process. I'll talk more about how to do that next week. I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't pay our taxes. I'm not saying we can't serve in the military. And most certainly, I think Christians should vote. And we should vote our conscience. And if we have a God-fearing candidate to try to elect, we should vote for them. But what I am saying is that the church's future doesn't depend on the outcome of elections. Do we really believe that the mission of God is impotent unless the church has political power? I would remind you that in countries in the world right now where the church is growing the fastest, and by the way, that includes Iran and North Korea and China, where the church not only has no political power, but the church is oppressed by political power, and yet the church is growing. She has no power, but she has stunning influence because she's doing exactly what Jesus said in serving their neighbors. We don't need the power of the state. We have the power of the Spirit. But we can forfeit the power of the Spirit. We've done it before. You and know enough church history know the first several hundred years of the church were filled with persecution and martyrdom and oppression by the government. But then after about 300 years, Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion and made it illegal not to be a Christian. And the church became immediately corrupted by power. And this happens all throughout history. The church gets in bed with political power and the babies don't look like Christians. And here's what else you need to know. During that season when the church was persecuted and martyred, there were constant outpourings of the Holy Spirit. It's on record. We can read about the healings and the miracles and the outpourings of the gifts. And almost as quickly as Constantine made a Christianity a state religion, the Spirit's work vanished. And the church lost the power of the Spirit. For the porridge of the power of the state. And I understand. I understand it's a lot easier to vote for a policy than to love a person. But that's the way Jesus chose. And what I have to choose is either the love of power or the power of love.
What is our strategy as people who follow Jesus in a divided and conflicted nation? The love of power or the power of love? Here's what Paul said. We do not preach about ourselves, but we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we are your servants for Jesus. So I got a letter this past summer. Someone reflecting on how one bat in another part of the world bit somebody and it infected and affected the entire globe. And in the letter he writes, I began to wonder, what if love were that contagious? What if hope and peace could be so infectious? What if joy could sweep along everywhere like a wildfire? What if goodness became an epidemic or compassion a pandemic? What if we radiated truth and forgiveness? What if we each gifted two or three people with kindness? What if grace and mercy went viral? I hear so many stories of fear and frustration, of doubt and depression. I see troubled minds and troubled hearts, hurt, loneliness, selfishness, confusions, anxiety. I hear about people using the internet and social media to ooze their self-centeredness and vomit their drama all over anyone who comes next. How about instead we invade the internet with love and grace and peace and hope? Can't the heart of Jesus also change the world? Dare we try to step out in faith and be a light in these dark times? Now here's what you need to know. That letter came from an inmate. That's why he kept saying, I hear about these things. That man grew up in this Tarrant County. He was in the Tarrant County Jail in 2007. When people from our church went, showed him some of my sermons on a DVD, and he came to Christ. He's been reading and listening to my sermons ever since. He's still in jail. He has absolutely no power. But he has brought so many inmates to Christ because he has influence. And he would tell you, the way of Jesus works. Next week, I'll talk a little bit more about how we can behave in a political climate we live in. So wait until after next week before you send me an email. (laughs) I'm often asked, or I hear people often ask about me, who does he vote for? You will never find out. (laughs) But I will tell you the grid through which I filter all of my politics. I love my country, but I love the kingdom more. I will not give to any party or person what only belongs to God. My love for you does not depend on you voting like me. My hope is tethered to a resurrection in the past and a return in the future. My mission is to invite all to surrender to the reign of God. My allegiance is to Jesus alone, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is why, no matter what happens in November, I will not be afraid. And so, now you know. Let's pray. And so, God, we begin with thanksgiving. We thank you for our country. We thank you for the freedoms that we 
enjoy. We thank you that we can engage in this thing called politics. And we obey your word from Apostle Paul to pray for our leaders in each party. And right now especially, we lift up the president and the first lady. Ask for their complete and speedy recovery. And Father, we pray for the church. This is our hour, our moment in history to witness to the way of Jesus. And so give us, God, patience, love, hope, resilience. Help us separate in the minds of an unbelieving world the words church and hate. Help us learn the words of Jesus. Believe the teachings of Jesus. And maybe most of all, help us actually practice the way of Jesus. And it's for his name, sake, and glory we ask. Amen.